Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Bruce Aisley. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about happiness and work culture. How can you turn Sunday night fear into Monday morning happiness? Back for a third series for the next 20 episodes or so. Let me tell you what we've got lined up, not just offices. We're going to be looking at how to build winning cultures in retail, in the police, in the fire service, basically any team. What are the lessons that we can all learn about improving work by looking at other teams? The summer was nice for uh, just watching the England football team seemingly enjoying themselves. So I'm speaking to the psychologists for the England team, Pippa Grange. I'm speaking to uh, firefighters about the importance of laughter in times of stress. I'm speaking to the chief constable, of one of the biggest police forces in the country, about building a trusted culture there. How can you change your culture? I'm speaking to the Harvard professor who was hired by Uber to turn around their culture. I'm speaking to marketing legend Seth Godin about how you might try and build a new culture in your own organisation. The guy who, who invented workplace engagement talks us through what his thinking was and how it's evolved. Jeffrey Pfeffer, whose book Power, he's basically the number one selling book in MBA bookshops, uh, tells us why he's fed up with work killing us. Hey, 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 hey. Some fantastic stuff to go. All of the previous episodes are live on the website, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, as is today's episode with a full transcript of the conversation. So let's go straight to today's interview. Adam Grant has been Wharton's top-rated professor for seven straight years. His books have sold over a million copies. Give and Take examines why helping others drives our success, and it was pretty much acclaimed everywhere. I call it Give to Get in the discussion, and that's because I'm a simple-minded fool. His book Originals explores how individuals champion new ideas, and Option B, his book with Sheryl Sandberg, was a number one bestseller on how to face adversity and build resilience. A few notes on the discussion, so things that will make more sense if I explain them now. We talk about stack ranking. So stack ranking is this system pioneered by uh, GE, and it's where everyone in an organisation is given a score. So it might be out of 10, it might be out of four. And that's forced into a, a bell curve distribution, pretty much meaning there's more scores at the in the middle and not many scores at the top and the bottom. It's estimated about a third of all companies use it. We talk about Bridgewater. Bridgewater is this sort of radical transparency company set up by a guy called Ray Dalio, very much regarded as sort of the leading uh, investment firm in the world. And it's got this culture where everyone is given a score after every meeting they attend. So uh, there's, there's an example we talk about where Ray, the founder of the company, is given a D minus by someone. And we'll explain that. If you're interested in Bridgewater on the, the show notes for the podcast, you'll see a link to that. We talk about something called positive effect, and we're going to talk about that quite a lot during this season. Positive effect is, is pretty much part of positive psychology, and it's been pioneered by researchers like Barbara Fredrickson, Teresa Amible, Alice Ison. The notion behind positive effect is that when we're in a better mood, when we're sort of feeling more positive, we tend to behave in a more collaborative and a more creative way. So we talk about that. Let's go straight to the chat. Here's Adam. Adam, I'm thrilled you join me. So you're an organisational psychologist. Explain to me what that is. Yeah, I'm not even sure myself. <laughs> so I I studied organizational psychology, which is basically about how to make work suck a little bit less. Uh, but you know, as a as a field, we take ideas from psychology and we try to ap- apply them to the workplace. So you know, we study issues like job design and work motivation, group decision making, and how to fight groupthink, organizational culture, emotions, and if you think about all the things that are relevant to your life at work. 
basically, our field is about trying to figure out how to make them work more effectively. Right. And, and the thing that really strikes me is that in the last 10 years, five years, we've seen a real popularization of behavioral economics. And this, you know, Daniel Kahneman sort of gone from being an academic hero to sort of a bestseller. But it's really strange that we've started to see a little bit of that, but we've not seen organizational psychology hit the mainstream to quite the same extent. Do you, do you think that's true or am I wrong there? I, I think it is true. I think that, you know, in some ways, the basic disciplines uh, end up taking off more quickly than the applied ones. Uh, and, you know, I think that if you go back further than, than Danny Kahneman, you know, I think that the, the popularizing of social science in some ways started with Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who, you know, has drawn most heavily on social psychology and a little bit here and there on sociology. And I think that, you know, as, as we expand popular interest in understanding human behavior, I think there's, you know, a growing amount of interest in, in organizational dynamics. And I think for a long time, you know, that, <laughs> that sphere was dominated by business gurus uh, yeah. who, you know, who basically made things up and were increasingly leaving the age of experience and entering the age of evidence, as far as I can tell. Which is a good thing. So, right. So on the evidence that you've got so far, dip our toe into it. How do we make work suck less? Well, I, I think it's a tall order, but the, the place I started my career was observing that, that lots of us do jobs that are meaningful, but never get to see the impact of our work. And, you know, if you think about what makes work meaningful for most of us, it's believing that if our, if our jobs didn't exist, other people would be worse off. And so, you know, when I think about there are lots of jobs in, in your world, Bruce, think about how many engineers never get feedback from a user. And you know, I think this is true in, in lots of different kinds of jobs. So I, I started out just asking, what would happen if we connected those dots? Uh, I was studying book editors who never heard from readers. Uh, and then I, I did some experiments with, uh, with fundraising callers who were bringing in money for a university. And I just brought in a scholarship student and randomly assigned some of the callers to, to hear him talk for five minutes about how he was able to attend this university because of the scholarship and it wouldn't have happened without their work. And he was really grateful for everything they did. And the average caller who, who just met him for five minutes spiked 142% in weekly minutes on the phone and 171% in weekly revenue. And it was, it was kind of stunning. And there was a very high turnover rate in the call center. Uh, so a few months later, we had a brand new staff to run the experiment again. And we were able to replicate it with lots of different groups of callers, a bunch of different scholarship students. And it was just for me a simple demonstration that I think we all recognize that People are motivated in jobs that, that make others' lives better. But we underestimate just how powerful that, that source of motivation can be when, when you get to see the, the living, breathing human being who's affected by what you do every day. So for me, that's one powerful way to make work suck a little bit less. That's fascinating, though, isn't it? Because where do you think the responsibility for that lies? Does the employer have a responsibility to try and connect workers with the meaning of their jobs? Or should we try and seek it out ourselves? Well, I'd, I'd say it's a little of both. I, I definitely feel that employers have a responsibility to do it and also an opportunity to do it, right? I, can, I cannot think of a more inexpensive way to make work meaningful than to say, hey, you know, let's, let's connect those dots. But I think that it's, it's unrealistic to expect that, you know, every single manager is going to get this right for every person's job. And I think that there are a lot of jobs that are actually not designed to have much of an impact, uh, you know, I think in a, for a lot of people, they feel like, you know, all their, their end users are internal to the organization and, you know, they don't think their work matters that much to their colleagues. And so in those cases, you know, I think that it's an opportunity for what my colleagues would call job crafting to say, all right, you know, how do you redesign your own job to seek out more opportunities for impact? Because you can almost see that companies might think that this is the sort of stuff, stuff that they, they get rid of. I, I saw you talking about uh, doctors who see a picture of patients tend to do a better job, a, a more complete job of, of diagnosing the patients. And, and any moment that we seem to see connection to the end user, to use a sort of blank word, but uh, the, the, the recipient of our service, it seems to have this meaningful uplift in just the commitment and the, the application we put into our jobs. It does. And, you know, I, I do think it applies to every kind of job. And, you know, the first step is to ask who's affected in, a, in the most meaningful ways by the job. And then the second is to ask, okay, who has the, the most compelling story to tell to, to bring that impact to life? In you know, in some cases, it's, it's not the people we expect. So if, if you go back to the, the fundraising call centers at the university, 
the, the first scholarship student we had, his name was Will, and he was voted most likely to succeed in his class. And he was charismatic. You could you can imagine him running for, you know, for a head of state position one day. And, you know, we started wondering, is this a Will effect? So we found the exact opposite of Will. Her name was Emily. Uh, she was the shyest, most introverted freshman we could find who got a scholarship. And I remember her walking into the call center. She was looking at her feet and just looked extremely uncomfortable. And, and she said, I, I just I wanted to come here to thank you for the scholarship. It really means a lot to me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how, how many minutes are the callers going to sit here before they walk out? And the Emily effect was about two and a half times stronger than the Will effect. Wow, 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 wow. OK. Which was great. And I think, I think two things happened. One was authenticity. Right. Will, Will was very polished. And, you know, you could wonder, all right, you know, how, how much does he mean it versus is he trying to motivate me? Whereas with Emily, you know, she would not be there unless this really meant something to her. And then, two, I think also people, you know, there, there's there's an empathy component of that. Right. It seemed like Emily was in a greater position of need than Will was. And so I think sometimes, you know, when, when we bring in those those users face to face, we we end up choosing the wrong people. It's not always the slickest, best storyteller. Yeah, you talked about a, a lawyer who um, had a stammer and a, a stutter, and 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 actually, sometimes so so many of us dwell on the ideas of authenticity and how to almost create authenticity. And this stammering lawyer did better. Is that right? The the the, the authenticity that was the thing that he was probably apologetic about actually helped him uh, be more connect more with jurors. It's, it's one of my favorite stories. And so I was, I guess the backstory on it is, I, I remember I was, I was sitting outside writing Give and Take, my first book, and I wanted to write a chapter on uh, what my colleague Alison Fregale calls the power of powerless communication, where, you know, she, she's shown in all these experiments that, you know, if you're just trying to show someone you're smart, you know, the smoother your, your communication, the better. But if you're working interdependently with other people and you're, you're collaborating and they have to decide whether they can trust you, uh, they want to know whether you're other oriented, whether you show concern for them, whether you might be willing to listen to hear, excuse me, whether you might be willing to hear suggestions and listen to their ideas, uh, even before they want to know how competent you are. And it turns out that when we speak with more hesitations and express a little uncertainty or doubt, and maybe even stumble over our words, it signals that we're not going to just be completely dominant and that we might, you know, recognize that we don't know everything. And so... You know, I, I, when I write, I always want to lead with evidence and then look for stories that will bring the data to life. And so I started thinking, okay, what's an extreme example of, of powerless communication being powerful? And I thought it would be amazing if there was a, a trial lawyer who, you know, who stuttered. And, you know, that was actually a, a signal of, of authenticity at some level. And so I just started Googling stuttering lawyer. Wow. And the movie, the, the King's Speech had just come out. And so uh, yeah. I guess there was, a, there was a lawyer here in Philadelphia, Dave Walton, who sure enough had a stutter and he was preparing for a big trial and he ended up hearing from a couple jurors afterward that he stuttered a bit during his closing and he was really bummed because he'd been working on overcoming the stutter for years. And they said, no, it was part of the reason we trusted you. Uh You know, it didn't, it didn't seem like you had all the answers. It made you more human. And I, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that anyone obviously should learn a stutter, (laughs) but I think that sometimes we, we work too hard to be polished. Yeah, that's remarkable. It, it's sort of, it's certainly it's so current to to what you'd expect, right? And it's, and certainly, especially, I guess we all work in environments now where extroversion and, and extrovert skills seem to be the ones rewarded. So when you see something that's less polished, it's it's just, I guess, heartening to some extent to see it, it actually connects. I I think that's very true, and of course, you know, there's a there's a sweet spot here, right? So, I think it's. It's actually easier to get away with, you know, with being a little bit unpolished or unscripted if you've already demonstrated your competence and proven your status. Yeah. And at that point, you know, people won't signal they won't take that as a signal that you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, they may take it as a sign that you're unprepared, which is, you know, then yeah. another question about how do you how do you walk that tightrope? Answer me this, and it's a big one. But I guess you know the field you work in. Do you believe in company culture? <laughs> well, what do you mean by believing it? Well. You know, the question for me, I, I know groups can have cultures and teams can have cultures and these and these brilliant examples of that. But I wonder whether, to a meaningful extent, a company of 4,000, 5,000, 20,000 people can have a co- coherent 
culture. My, my instinct is, I wonder whether sometimes the sort of performative mask that people feel obliged to wear at work might come from some of these cultural initiatives. Now, I'm just, I just wondered your take on it. Have you seen cultures exist at scale? Yeah. So I think, I think your point is right on target. I think cultures generally become more fragmented as, as organizations get bigger. And so it's really easy to identify a strong culture in a team or maybe even a department or a unit. But, you know, if you forget, forget four or 5,000 people, let's talk about companies of four or 500,000 people, you know, to, to have one culture where, uh, where people agree on what the, the values are and then they also agree on how to live them and they're passionate about them. I think that's pretty uncommon. I, yeah. I don't think, though, that we should take that as a signal that, that companies don't have a culture, right? Because we, we still, even when you study huge organizations, you see some consistency in, you know, in what the values are across different uh, regions, across different functions. And, you know, I think that it's, it's certainly something to consider whether, whether that actually makes sense, right? Do you want one unifying culture or do you want a series of subcultures that are, you know, effective in different parts of the organization, for example, uh, if you know, if, if I think about your world at, at Twitter, um, I probably want a slightly different culture in, uh, in in the high reliability part of the organization that's trying to present prevent the the platform from crashing, than I do, you know, for for people who are doing product innovation. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I probably also want to have some overarching values that are cris- consistent across those groups. And so I, I don't think any company has one culture, but I think it's possible to say, yeah, we can see broad differences between organizational cultures uh, the same way that we can see them between team cultures. Yeah, I guess my the question I wonder is, you know, there's an industry that's spun up on building company cultures and broadly the culture documents that you might read online are, they almost feel like marketing devices quite often. You know, they're designed to present a positive glow to the outside world. And I just wonder how meaningfully you've yeah. seen people change cultures within organizations. I, I think culture change is possibly the hardest thing for a leader to do. Uh, but I think at minimum, you can start by trying to, to identify and diagnose what the existing culture is. So there's some research dating back to the early 80s, which looks at what's called the organizational uniqueness bias. And the, the idea here is that, you know, anytime you ask people, you know, what's the culture like in your organization, you start to hear these claims that, oh, our culture is totally different from anyone else's. But if you start to ask, well, tell me, tell me a story about something that happened here that wouldn't elsewhere. And you do that across a bunch of different organizations, you hear the same kinds of stories over and over again. Right. So the, the stories are, are, the, are answers to, to some basic questions like, is the big boss human or can the little person get to the top? And when, when researchers went and did this across a bunch of companies, they, they found on average only about seven questions that define cultures. And, you know, you could, you could answer each of those questions, well, yes or no. And so you didn't have that many variations. And then, you know, as you do that exercise, right, what you want to do is you want to go and ask people in different parts of an organization, you know, okay, what is the story about the thing happening here that wouldn't happen elsewhere? And then you look for the common themes, which start to tell you, okay, is there anything that stands out or is distinctive about this culture? And once you identify those, if you want to make a change, I think probably the best thing you can do is what Chip and, Han, uh, Chip and Dan Heath would call finding the bright spots, which is to say the larger the organization is, the higher the odds that there's something happening in one pocket of it that already reflects the culture you want to create. And so you're, you're less trying to change a culture and more trying to spread a, a subculture that's already working the way you want it to. And your, your challenge is to, to go and discover where that lies and then how to spread their practices. Right. So, so it's, it's, okay, so it's cross-pollination of good stuff rather than start from scratch. That's much more succinct than what I just said. But yes, that's what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just wondered, um, one of the things I saw you writing and talking about was performance reviews. And and I guess most of us feel that our our interactions with our bosses might be... um, might be characterized principally by a sort of sense of uncertainty and then hearing how our performance reviews have gone. And, and a lot of people have wondered, certainly if you, if you link performance reviews with stack ranking, a lot of people have speculated whether these things might be worth abolishing. And I saw that you broadly felt that they were worth giving another chance to. 
Yeah, so I, I definitely want to separate performance reviews from stack ranking. Okay. Stack ranking is possibly the worst system to enter organizations in the 20th century. Right. Because, you know, you, you basically start by saying the whole reason we build an organization is because we want to be more than the sum of our parts. And we need people to collaborate to achieve some kind of collective goal. And then you measure them by saying in order to, uh, to get high performance reviews and in order to get a bonus and to get promoted, you have to be better than the people you're supposedly collaborating with. And, you know, Steve Kerr years ago said this is a great example of the folly of hoping for A while report rewarding B. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of that as a system. And I think the, the evidence is, is pretty strong over the past few decades that when you force rank people and require them to compete against each other, uh, you basically undermine your collaboration culture and make it hard for people to want to help each other, uh, which we know is critical to organizational effectiveness. Yeah. Performance reviews, though, if, you know, if, if we're just talking about evaluating you know, how well you've delivered on your goals and met your objectives, uh, I, I think there's still a time and a place for that because... People do not, they do want to know where they stand. And you also need a mechanism for deciding, you know, who's going to get a bonus and who's going to get promoted. And I think one of the big problems is if we throw performance reviews out the window altogether, those decisions are being made still, but they're being made in a black box. And so you end up with reduced transparency. Employees don't know as much why they're being evaluated the way they are. And they don't necessarily get a, a bunch of insight into whether the system is fair. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's not an effective strategy to say, all right, we're just we're not going to review people because you're still doing reviews in secret. Right. OK, so you're separating the two things. I get it because quite often they are put together, aren't they? And, and so, you know, the performance review ends up someone getting a score and in a dark, dark room, uh, all those scores are sort of aggregated into a bell curve. So, OK, it's, you see them as separate. Yeah, I mean, the, the exact opposite of that would be the, the system in place at Bridgewater. So, you know, I, I think the, it's, it's one of the strongest cultures I've ever, I've ever seen, and it's not necessarily a culture that, that is to everyone's taste. But it, okay, as a, true. Do you believe it? I mean, I know you've spoken to, to Ray. Do you believe it? If I hear about that one D-minus email again, I might have to delete the internet. <laughs> it's like, the, the thing I fear about is that when I'm only hearing one story repeated, um, it makes me suspect that that didn't really happen that often. So should we just go into what the culture is and, sure. and maybe you can explain? Yeah. So, you know, as a hedge fund, Bridgewater has made more money than any other company in the industry over four decades. And they also anticipated the, the financial crisis in 2007. So they're obviously doing something well. And they have a, a whole bunch of principles that they've crystallized over the course of Ray's few decades of, of building and running the company. Uh, one of the key principles for me is that no one has a right to hold a critical opinion without speaking up about it. And I think that's the opposite of what we see in most organizations, right? Yeah. If you have a critical opinion, you are not welcome to speak up about it. And I, I've spent a couple of years studying them. And you know, I went in as a skeptic and I came out thinking that they've gone to the extreme on some things that a lot of organizations struggle with. And there's, there's a lot that we can learn from them. And so one of the, the things that I think they do really effectively is in their performance reviews, they actually evaluate people behaviorally on the principles. And so you know what all the principles are and you're given real-time feedback. So anytime, if we're in a meeting, anytime I see you do something that's either, you know, sort of an expression or a violation of a principle, I can give you a dot, which is just kind of a micro rating. And then those are all aggregated, but everybody can review everyone else's dots so that people know exactly how they're being assessed. And so one of the things I could be dotted for is I could get praise for criticizing a boss in a meeting who's, you know, whose decision-making process is really shallow. And then, you know, instead of that boss tearing my, <laughs> like tearing me a new one or screaming at me, the boss can see, wow, everyone in that meeting thought I was effective at, you know, at operationalizing or living that principle. And so then in you know, my performance review, I might actually get promoted for, you know, for disagreeing with the boss and you know, challenging on a hard truth. And yeah, I'd, love, I'd love to see more of that happen in, in any workplace. So, so the, the D minus I mentioned was that Ray makes a, a big, Ray Delia makes a big point of saying that someone once sent him an email saying, Ray, in that meeting, you're, you're a D minus, you were unprepared, you waffled, you monologued. And so, you know, he mentions repeatedly, this is how transparent our culture is that, you know, that people feel free to, to challenge me. The thing I did wonder though, Adam, is that 
I, I wonder whether this, this beautiful sweet spot between <laughs> psychological safety, which is what that is there, right? The freedom to speak up and yeah. businesses that have positive effects so businesses that people feel, um, I mean, you know, in a good mood, they feel motivated because the thing that really struck me about um, about Bridgewater is that they had high employee turnover. A lot of people didn't really like the environment. And I just wonder whether, while that was a psychologically safe place, it, it possibly wasn't a happy place. So it's interesting. I think a couple of things I would say about that. The first one is that the the turnover rate is you know, is pretty high. It's about a third of people in the first year and a half. And then if if you decided that you know this is a culture where where you feel like you're effective and you can learn and grow, uh, once you've stayed for that year year and a half, turnover is shockingly low right, after that. Right. And so you know they they see it as you know kind of a natural part of the uh, they, they you know they do their onboarding as a, a boot camp. Uh, sort of modeled after the Navy SEALs. And, you know, they, they, they want to find out relatively quickly and they want you to find out relatively quickly if this is a place where you, you know, you find value and you think you can add value. Um, but after that, you know, a lot of people will say it feels like a family to them. And, you know, in a family, one of the defining features of, to me, a functioning family is that people are, are radically candid with each other. And so, you know, I think the questions that I would ask are around how do you get that to, to be done in a way that's, that's still kind and compassionate, uh, but people are also direct. And I don't think we have to choose between the two, right? So, you know, I, I, uh, I, I actually just, you know, had a, a call with, with Ray the other day where, you know, he, he said, hey, like, stop me if I'm rambling. And I interrupted. And I said, yeah, actually, now that you mentioned it, you're rambling. <laughs> and you know, what, what he's doing there is he is giving me permission to criticize him on that. And he doesn't take it personally at all, right? He's like, thanks for the feedback. I'm going to shut up now. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to have more of that happen. And I think that, you know, that, that to me is an example of creating psychological safety without making it unpleasant. On the contrary, right? I don't have to do all this work to figure out how do I say it to Ray. I can just be direct. And he knows that that's part of our, work, our working relationship. And, uh, you know, I think, I guess the other thing I would say, Bruce, is... The, the D minus story to me is an example of something that uh, that you know has has caught on because it's so vivid and memorable. But these events happen every day, yeah. uh, and it's just one of the one of the most extreme stories that I think has caught fire. But I think what what I valued at Bridgewater is I think that they do a really good job saying, look, you don't just need a support network; you need a challenge network, right? You need you need people who aren't just going to have your back. You need people who are going to have your back so strongly that when you're doing something that doesn't make sense or when your work is not up to your own standards, they're going to be honest with you. And, you know, I would love to have more of those people in my life, not yeah. fewer. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, just on your, your own sort of incredible podcast, there was, there was that um, discussion where someone was told they were the worst manager in the company. And I just felt like even though the, the, the chap talking about it was so remarkably charitable in the way that he was talking about it. it it described it felt to me like a moment of humiliation i felt like you know yeah it, it felt um unnecessarily hurtful and and so consequently i just thought this just doesn't feel like a positive effect environment it doesn't feel like people are going to be inspired to do their best work but more feel like they're trying to survive it you know, it's interesting. I, I felt that way about it at first. And I, I came I came out of so so Kieran Rao uh, in I guess it was the it was the it was the debut episode of my work life podcast with Ted. Uh, I, I when I first heard this story, I said, Okay, we we've got to get to the bottom of this because here's a guy who's been really successful in his career. He was a doctor. And then he was a uh, he worked at a management consulting firm. And then he ran his own investment firm. And then he shows up at Bridgewater and he's a manager there and he gets called into a meeting and they show a, a rank list of managers from best to worst. And he is the single worst manager of 200 people and everyone knows. And I, I also, I was like, oh my gosh, that I cannot think of anything more humiliating. <laughs> like, it would, can, worst nightmare, right? Professionally. Right. But I, you know, I, I spent over an hour with him and, you know, I asked him my you know, all the, the, the critical questions that, that were coming to mind around, you know, how could you really say that this was a good thing? You know, are, are you just drinking the Kool-Aid? Uh, have, have you basically, you know, sort of, uh, are, you, are you a victim of cognitive dissonance like, you know, like we see in fraternity hazing where, mm. you know, you've, you, you, I, I, I suffered so badly that I have to justify it now and say yeah. this was a good experience. 
And I, I have to tell you, I, I came away convinced that right. in that culture, right, with the level of transparency they're accustomed to, there was no new information being presented there, right? Because Kieran already knew he was struggling. His colleagues could look up the data any day. He right. might have, as I think we all have a tendency to do, underestimated just how badly he was doing. And he said, look, you know, I've got two choices. One is I can pretend that I'm doing just fine and, you know, eventually get fired here when this is the place where I'm learning more than anywhere else I've worked because people really care about helping me get better and helping me see my blind spots. Um, you know, or I can, you know, I can, I can basically face this and say, this is not the most fun thing that's ever happened to me, but people are only giving me this feedback because they believe that I can learn from it and either improve in this role or find a role that's, you know, better aligned with my strengths. And, you know, I, look, I, I still would not want to be in Karen's position ever. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it did remind me a little bit of, uh, I think I talked about this a little bit in the, on the podcast, but one thing I didn't get to is... Uh, you know, in, in my, my sports days, I was a springboard diver. And, you know, I just, I just remember <laughs> coming out of the water after doing what I thought was one of my best dives ever. And my, my coach, Eric Best, just looking at me and saying, Adam, that was bad. <laughs> right. And I was like, in the moment I was crushed. Cause I was like, oh, I thought I nailed it. I've been working on this dive for over a year. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, like, once once I realized, oh, well, everyone already saw the dive. Like there, there's no reason yeah. to feel humiliated yeah. here, right? It's out there. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of, the, the overwhelming feeling I had after leaving the time with Kieran was, gosh, I, I miss those, those days where, you know, as an athlete, my performance was totally visible. And, you know, I just knew that the people who were there coaching me, their sole aim was to try to improve it. Yeah. And, you know, where I didn't have to spend all this energy trying to hide my mistakes and, you know, I, I could actually just focus on learning and, you know, trying to achieve some level of excellence. And I, I kind of want more of that. Don't you? Yeah. You know, and it, it, I guess the reason why Bridgewater stands out and, and maybe the way that they describe some elements of the Netflix culture stands out is that they feel different to what we're surrounded with. You know, if we're in, if we're in working environments where... There, there is at least a nominal respect of working culture. Like you say, they tend to be quite homogenous. They tend to be sort of broadly the same. And so when you see something like that, it's it's like someone speaking in a foreign language. It's got that sort of stark, shocking effect. But um, it does make me feel like the experience of being a high performer there would be very different to being a, a, a poor performer there, which I suspect is what they intend. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And I... I... I've had the same reaction actually when you know when I think about organizations that are are known for you know for having strong cultures they're they're known because they take things that are done one way and they say you know what we're going to reimagine this and ask why does it have to be that way and you know is there is there a better alternative to the default way that most organizations tend to manage this and I don't think when we look at those examples I don't think we should try to emulate them Right? I don't think you should try to build Bridgewater's culture or Netflix's culture. What I think you should do is say, okay, if I look at their practices, uh, what assumptions have they questioned that I took for granted? And then what are the ways to, to question those, those assumptions in my organization? And you know, think about what kinds of practices might be effective given our values and our goals. Yeah. Because it really brings to mind, um, you know, in, in, in Give to Get, you, you, you talk about um, the performance of stars and the performance of stars where they, um, they, they work in, uh, I think it was investment banking. And the st- these star performers leave their teams and stars performance reverts to the norm. It's sort of it doesn't do as well when they, yeah. they go. I'm telling this incredibly badly, but it, it reverts to the norm. And or star surgeons, I think you mentioned as well. If they go to a different hospital, they don't perform as well. So broadly, that says to me we're, we're mistaking one data point and actually team performance is what's producing those good results. Then if I transpose that and I've told that badly, so please correct me. But then if I transpose those results to Bridgewater, I'm thinking, wow, one data point is hiding a whole load of stuff and we're only seeing the thing that looks brutally exposing. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a very nice way to characterize it. I think, I mean, the, the, the investment analyst and surgeon data are so interesting, right? That as an analyst, you can go to another firm that looks pretty similar and it takes you five years to recover your star status on average 
unless you take your team with you, uh, in which case there's no drop in your performance. Amazing. Or that, you know, the, the surgeons who, who are operating at one hospital, uh, cardiac surgeons, then go to another hospital and it's as if they're, they're starting over and they don't have any practice or experience. Uh, and again, it's, it's the question of, do, are you surrounded by your team that makes you better? And I think that, you know, in, in, in a lot of companies, one of the, the first things that I notice when I come in is they say they want collaboration. They want people to, to be helpful, to solve problems, to share knowledge. And then they're only measuring and rewarding individual performance and they're only hiring and firing individuals. And I would say, look, if you really take the idea of collaboration seriously, one of the things you ought to do is hire teams and fire teams. Hmm. Right. If, if there's a if, if you're looking to solve a creative problem, for example, and there's a creative team that's been effective in another organization, don't just poach the team lead or the star. Bring the whole team in and you can you can borrow their working routines. Yeah, which is so different to what we do currently, isn't it? And and uh, and that poor guy at Bridgewater, I'm still thinking about him. But <laughs> <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Eat, sleep, work, repeat is brought to you in association with the joy of work. The new book by Bruce Daisley, that's me. So let's call my mate Matt. Hello. Hello, mate. How you doing? I'm very well. How are you? No, I'm phoning you because you're one of the only two people who've read The Joy of Work. Obviously, Nigel... The Joy of Work! (laughs) (laughs) Nigel, the editor, has read it, but then you've also read it. So I'm sort of looking for some sort... I'm looking for some sort of listener testimony, reader testimonial about how it was. So, I mean, to give the joy of work its credit, I read it on holiday, which I don't normally read books on holiday, especially books on work. Um, I thought it was superb. And the reason why is every book on work culture that I've ever read, I've not enjoyed. I've always been either by people who clearly love work, want you to focus more, or the kind of latest person who's the, the latest work guru telling you a new way to do it. Without being, this may sound a bit rude, it felt to me like this book, where I could describe it, just the bloke from one who flew over the cooker's nest uh, decided to write a book about hospital care, but backed it up with science. Um, <laughs> that it felt very counter-revolutionary, if you can say that about a workbook, but funny as well. <laughs> the, the one flew over the cuckoo's <laughs> reference, right? Is that definitely a compliment? It is a compliment. He was a he, changed, he was a good lad when he came. He changed things around. He worked it up. I'm saying if if rather than just trying to get out and bring in cigarettes to the to the other people, if he'd have gone about it with a bit more scientific approach, I think he could have done a lot of good in the hospital world. Right, I get it. Thank you very much. It's available on Amazon and Waterstones as a pre-order today. Now back to Adam. Answer me this. So quite often we see discussions about providing purpose at work. And I saw you frame it in a slightly different way that I didn't know whether it was a compliment or a substitute. And that was talking about pride of uh, your, the pride of doing your job, which felt actually a more 
a tangible way to, to understand purpose. Could you just give me your perspective on those things? Sure. So this, uh, this is a, a project I did with the people analytics team at Facebook. And they had a bunch of data on, uh, on employee engagement and uh, also job performance. And you know, we, we wanted to know, well, where, where does engagement come from? And the standard story about engagement is it's about the work and it's about the people you work with. And, you know, I'm not going to discount either of those things, right? I think the, the job you do is incredibly important. And, you know, your colleagues matter about as much. And I would have placed my money hands down on those two factors as the biggest drivers of engagement. And in the Facebook data, it was the feelings about the company that mattered even more. So that if you felt proud to work at Facebook, that was the number one predictor of, of how engaged you were. And then... You know, so we say, okay, your, your feelings about the larger organization and its mission matter a lot too. And where do those come from? We were able to break that down then in the, the engagement survey data and say, look, your, your pride in the organization comes from a, you know, a couple different places. One is right. you know, your, your commitment to the mission uh, and your sense that it, uh, it does social good. And then another, another real source of pride is saying, you know what, I, I know what this company stands for. And I don't, I don't think we're, we're thoughtful enough about this as leaders, right? To say, okay, what is it that's going to make people feel proud to work here and convince them that this organization's mission is important, that it's going to, you know, to make the future better and that our future is better together than it was in the past, given the work we do. And, you know, and also that, uh, that there's a real line of sight between my individual role and what the larger mission of the organization is. And do you think this is touchable for all businesses? Because I understand these big, um, we're changing the world kind of Silicon Valley companies doing it. And I can understand that that's very attainable in schools or in public service. But if you're working in a subway uh, sandwich store, is, can you have the same sense of pride in that, do you think, or purpose in that? Of course. And, and if you can't, I don't think that organization right. should exist. Right. So, you know, I think you, you might think about it a little bit differently, though, right? So part of the mission might be to make healthy food affordable. Part of the mission might be to, you know, to create jobs that, you know, allow people to support their families. And, you know, there's no reason why you can't find just as much meaning in that, if not more meaning, uh, you know, than, than sort of a lofty tech company might. Yeah. And if you're the Daniel Kahneman of of, of um, organisational uh, psychology, who, who do you most admire in the space? Because it, it, for me, it's like a captivating. Well, I tell you what I find bizarre is how little of the organisational psychology stuff reaches people in jobs. You know that that this is like such. A, an abundant field full of evidence and yet people are doing jobs and filling their workforces full of fear and and so 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 little of the science reaches but um who, who do you admire in the space so it's it's an interesting question so if we go back to 2010 uh, i was i was working on a, a project with the google people analytics team and one of the the questions that we asked was who else is doing this kind of work you know, mm. I'm sure you're familiar with their work to identify the, you know, the habits of great managers or, or how to build a successful team. And the Google answer was, well, we, we don't really know. And so a colleague of mine, Cade Massey, and I sat down and said, what if, what if we build a, a conference and you know, sort of take a field of dreams approach? If you've seen the movie, if we build it, will they come? And we, we started this conference. We called it the Wharton People Analytics Conference. And we just said, all right, we'll, we'll put out 200 tickets. And it sold out six weeks in advance. The next year, it doubled and sold out again. Uh, we're, we just ran our fifth one this spring and uh, had over 600 people come. And that's been a window as, as we were on a broader Wharton People Analytics initiative to try to make uh, data-driven decision-making a norm in organizations with people the same way it is for finance or accounting or you know product testing. Um, We've we've discovered really through running the conference and the initiative what what's going on in lots of organizations, and so I can I can throw out a couple examples that I think are really compelling. Uh, one is uh, I think Teach for America's hiring model uh, is is probably best in class. Uh, they have a they have a you know a benchmark which reflects all the different skills and values they're looking for in teachers, and then instead of just doing interviews, they actually have teaching demonstrations where they have experts observe you teach a class and then they vote. Uh, and rate and and they do that in a multi-round, very rigorous data-driven process, which I think is amazing. 
Um, I think that uh, I'm a huge fan of Textio. I'm sure you're familiar with their work yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, Kieran Snyder, I think, has, has done a brilliant job eliminating bias from job descriptions and attracting and helping you know organizations hire uh, more diverse slate of candidates. Uh, I think also it's it's probably worth a shout out to JetBlue. One of the things that the JetBlue has done is they've systematized their recognition process. And so, you know, lots of companies run recognition programs to, you know, to make sure that people who do good work uh, are awarded in some way or they're known. And the JetBlue team actually went and studied it and found something really interesting. Uh, this is a, a, an analysis that I got to be part of, uh, that giving recognition, uh, recognizing your colleagues, matters as much for your engagement and your performance as being recognized. And so, you know, I think that for me, this is some of the first evidence suggesting that, you know, a pure bonus and recognition program where, you know, you have the discretion to say, hey, I think Bruce did an extraordinary job. Here's how he added value above and beyond his, you know, his formal role here. And here's why I think he deserves, you know, real attention for it. Uh, That actually helps me become more engaged and more effective, not just you, uh, because I think it it gives me a chance to feel like uh, good work is valued around here. And, you know, it also helps me highlight the kind of, of role model that I'd like to be. My fear when I look at the future of work is that I wonder if it's going to become twin track. It's going to be sort of there's going to be progressive organizations who are implementing very sort of enlightened um, working cultures. And then there's going to be cultures that just unfortunately lag behind. Do, do, do you have the same pessimism about it? I think I think I do accept that my optimism comes from the hope that increasingly it'll be hard for an organization to survive if they don't invest in their people. Uh, you know, I think as as we move more and more to a world where lots of work can be automated or outsourced, I think that it's it's hard to believe that that culture and people will not be a sustainable competitive advantage, right? If if almost everything that's that's non-substitutable is either knowledge work or service work that depends on, you know, on, on the quality of human relationships and human ingenuity. Uh, we know the way you treat your people spills over to affect your customers. We know the way you treat your people affects how creative and innovative you are. And so, you know, if, if moving forward, organizations live and die on, on service and creativity, uh, I think that's, that's a case for optimism. I also, I guess, you know, at some level, I want to say, uh, I'll go out on a limb here and say that we're already seeing some of that competitive advantage play out. Uh, there's a great book that that Zainab Tan wrote at MIT called The Good Job Strategy, where she studied some of the industries that are most notorious for treating employees poorly. Uh, so think about retail jobs or fast food. And she actually finds that there's a competitive advantage, which you can trace to revenue and other hard financial metrics that comes from saying, you know what, I'm going to invest in developing my people wow. and designing meaningful work where they have learning opportunities. And then you're more able to promote from within. Uh, you have lower turnover. And that translates into a cost savings. And there are also some really interesting operational efficiencies that come from it. So, you know, you could look at, uh, at Trader Joe's as an example of that. Uh, there are a bunch of others in her book. But I think we're going to see more and more of that. Fingers crossed. Well, that, I, that, that sounds like someone I should be uh, reading next. Can, can I, the final question. Adam, man, how do you sleep? Like you, you produce, <laughs> your productivity is extraordinary. Do you ever get the opportunity to sleep and rest? Uh, Podcast, books, lecturing? It's kind of you to ask. I, I actually don't feel that productive on most days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I do sleep seven to eight hours a night. Good man. And I try to use my time efficiently, but... I think what what motivates me to be productive more than any anything else is the feeling that I wasted a day. Thank and so, you know, I've I've actually started to try to reframe, you know, I'll have a day where I feel like I didn't get anything done. You know, I could have written a draft of an article or analyzed a data set or, you know, put together the pitch for the the next, you know, episode of Work Life, and I didn't do any of those things. And, you know, instead of just feeling dejected by that, that becomes fuel to say, okay, that's all the more reason to be productive tomorrow. Good, good. I'm delighted more than anything with all that productivity that you're not economising on sleep. I think we need more. <laughs> we, you know, we need more icons who are going to be proud. Wait, hold say. on. I think that's an oxymoron. Right, okay. Economising on sleep. Right, yes. Yes, fair point. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. We need more role models who aren't sort of claiming life hacks of getting up at 4am and doing 100 press-ups, so... Good. That is, I mean, that's just outrageous, right? One, I, I think it's from the data that I've read, what, less than 2% of the population who can sustain themselves on, on less sleep. 
And two, even if they can, it just sounds like a really miserable way to live. Yeah, absolutely. Did you read that survey? Because in that 2% survey, when they loaded the people into this uh, brain scanner to, to see, a whole heap of them fell asleep while they were having their brain scanned. <laughs> <laughs> All these people who proudly professed to be masters of the universe where they didn't wow. need sleep even fell asleep before the, the, um, the scan was done on them. Amazing. So we just need to make them participate in nightly studies then. Done. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. I'm I'm so eternally grateful for you for your time today, and and I, as I expected, it's been uh, it's been enthralling. So thank you so much. Pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for having me. I'm blown away to start with someone as incredible as Adam. Here's the magic. That chat was a few weeks ago, and I was so inspired by Adam saying that the work of Zeynep Tan was what inspired him. The idea that if you can show that good culture in retail stores drives more profit, that maybe it's the only sustainable competitive position for any firm. So let's ask Zeynep Tan. Next week's guest is Zeynep. Let me tell you, it's one of my favourite ever discussions for this podcast. She is changing the life of millions and millions of people. Full transcript to this podcast and links to Adam's podcast are available on the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. Good to be back. Some fantastic stuff going on. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.